This is an ABC podcast. Hey, Norman, guess what? What? This is Coronacast. <laughs> That's all. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. What a revelation. I'm dr- an opposition. Sorry. What a revelation. And I'm physician. What a revelation. And I'm physician and surgeon. Doctor. No, I'm physician and surgeon. What a revelation. Sorry. What a revelation. And I'm physician and help. What a revelation. And I'm physician. What a revelation. And I'm physician and Am I? <laughs> what a revelation. I'm physician and journalist, Dr. Norman Swan. So, Norman, we heard long before 2020 rolled around that the next pandemic was not a question of if but when by like a small group of scientists that everyone sort of studiously seemed to ignore. We now know that that's the case. And we've heard that that's still the case, that there's still other new diseases that could emerge at any time causing a pandemic. So what's it going to take to stop that from happening? And there was a paper that was published in the journal Science Advances recently, which we thought was really interesting. So we thought we'd have a talk about it today with one of the guys that wrote it. But first of all, can you give us just a quick summary of what they said? Yeah, the basic premise here is that prevention is better than cure and that the money we've spent on this pandemic has been post what's called spillover. So spillover is when you get the bug jumping from an animal, in this case a bat, into another animal or humans, and then it spreads. And they're saying, hold on a second, we actually think we know how to prevent future pandemics. And not just future pandemics, but spillovers which happen all the time. Every year there are spillovers which actually have their costs and could potentially turn into a pandemic, and we're lucky that they don't. But the solution is pretty cheap. They argue that if you take their three main measures and spend money on them and implement them, for every dollar you spend on them, you save $20 in the future. One of the authors behind this is actually a fellow Scot, but he now works at Princeton University. Uh, He's Professor Andy Dobson, who works in ecology and evolutionary biology. Welcome to Coronacast. My pleasure. Before we get to your solutions, describe what strategies are in play at the moment and and why you have a problem with them. Problem is here is detecting novel viruses before they jump over and trying to slow the rate of that happening. At the moment, the big problem is we we get to them too late. The, The classic example is COVID. Once it starts spreading in the human population, scientists can do amazing things making vaccines, but there's a delay while politicians decide what we've done and that they're always hesitant to sort of close down the economy. So it would be much better if we could stop these outbreaks before they occur by looking at the primary causes, which are deforestation, intensification of agriculture, and particularly deforestation of tropical forests, and the wildlife trade. We can halve each of those, then we halve the risk of new pathogens appearing. What sort of surveillance should be being done? And is it being done in any coordinated way at the moment? Initial surveys have been done, Vietnam, China, by wildlife disease biologists going out and sampling animals, many Animal behavior projects in the fields will take blood samples and those will also be looked at for unusual viruses. More usually, it tends to be done sort of serendipitously. There'll be an outbreak of diseases. People don't understand what it was. So luckily, there might be a vet in the vicinity who can take some samples and get them to a lab where they can be analyzed to see, is this something we've seen before? Is this something new? What we're proposing is that there be a much more broad scale look across wild animals to see, well, what is the global diversity of viruses out there? 
so we can make a genetic-based database of all those viruses. And then it would be much quicker to be able to produce tests, should a new one come over, much quicker to be able to produce vaccines. And we'd also learn a lot about what is a huge area of biodiversity that we don't tend to think of. We tend to think of the free living species rather than the, the pathogenic ones, but we should always be much more worried about the pathogenic ones. So not having any information about them makes them even more scary in my book. So you're, you're proposing three strategies for the, the prevention of pandemics and what's called zoonotic diseases. And, and, but this first one is actually is post-spillover. In other words, this first one is detecting it when it's got into humans this is, your, is your first strategy and having a much more comprehensive database of that. Detecting it before it gets into humans, you know, finding out what's the diversity of stuff that's out there. And indeed, Figure three in the paper clearly shows if you look at people working in the wildlife trade, particularly people catching bats or primates, how many novel viruses have we seen in the blood of the animals they've collected over the space of a year or so? And it looks to me as if people working in the bat area are getting exposed to 40 or 50 new viruses a year. People in the pri- who work with primates are being exposed to maybe 100. That tells us we've either been really lucky and lots of those haven't come over or we were just really unlucky this time. So this is extraordinary. Let's just talk about that a little bit more. So in other words, people who are catching wildlife, trading it either legally or illegally, they're like a canary in the coal mine or they're spreading these zoonotic diseases. What's happening there? What do we know about that? In sometimes uh, accidental canaries in the coal mine and one of them will get infected. It could also be the obvious of that, that they're exposed to so many things that they have hypersensitive immune systems and anything novel that comes along uh, is just suppressed by their immune system. So the disease won't spread until it goes from the the active person collecting the wildlife into one of the uh, wet markets or something like that, where people who don't get exposed to so many get exposed to the one that, that somehow then begins to take off. We don't want the general public to be the canary in the coal mine. It would be better that it would be scientists who know what they're doing to sort of find out what things are there so as we can identify risk areas where you can change people's behavior in those areas. How would you manage the wildlife trade better? Close it down would be the best thing. Uh, It it has no benefits. It only does harm. But unless we were able to actually detect people who were involved with that, you might actually detect viruses that have spilt over. Well, there's a catch there. The the people who uh, monitor the wildlife trade, CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, only has a budget of $7 million a year, paid for by 165 different countries and organizations. They rarely get all that $7 million. And that $7 million is you know, less than the money that changes hands in one minute on the Sydney Stock Exchange or the New York Stock Exchange. But we're not prepared to invest more in CITES. CITES says that it doesn't want to deal with having to monitor in, uh, emerging diseases. So that job should really go to FAO, the, the, the United Nations Food Organization. Now, they would also need to ratchet up their budget and, and ways of dealing with CITES and able to do that. But essentially, you know, having only $7 million spent on that per year is pathetic testimony to, to how humans worry about risk and how important we consider wildlife. When you say we here, who's who's in charge of dispensing this money or what kind of organisation would we need to have to coordinate this sort of response? You would just want countries to uh, make bigger donations. 
do the 7 million divided by 156 countries, which is plainly going to be, you know, the US may give nearly a million, other countries are giving less. Some of them are giving, you know, 50 or $60 a year. It's like a charitable donation. So strategy number one is that you have better surveillance in the environment of viruses, in other words, a library of viruses and their genomes. And if you can get it from these people who are involved with wildlife, what antibodies they've got to get a sense of which viruses are spilling over, shutting down the wildlife trade or at least monitoring it much more closely, taking blood from people who are involved with that to actually cross-check against your, your surveillance. So that's the second thing. And then the third strategy is reduction of deforestation. So explain why deforestation is a risk factor for pandemics. If you look at the emerging pathogens we've had, there's at least 50% of them seem to come from areas of deforestation, particularly along the boundaries of that. Uh, Ebola is the classic case then. There have been multiple papers looking at areas where there have been Ebola outbreaks, and they're all along the edge of the Central African forest as it's being chopped down, deforested. If we go and look at the Amazon, wherever there is deforestation in the Amazon, we are seeing the emergence of vector-borne diseases, ones transmitted by mosquitoes, because mosquitoes are at low density in deep forest. They seem to be at highest density along the forest edge when it's just been cut, probably because of the mixture of sort of humidity and, and, and warm air. For a wide range of diseases that we're already worried about, things like dengue and malaria, whenever there's deforestation in the Amazon, we get outbreaks of those diseases. The problem with emerging viruses is that they're often classified as being, oh, this is just somebody with malaria. They either die or they get better. And if they die, it's put down as malaria on their death certificate, but they, they don't ever do a sort of post-mortem or, or a rigorous test for sort of blood sample. So what you're saying is some of these people who are dying may have novel viruses. And, and luckily, none of them have seriously taken off yet. But I mean, we saw five or six years ago, Zika virus suddenly took off in Brazil. And that was causing all sorts of problems. If we'd followed your steps before COVID, would we have avoided it? That's an interesting question. I mean, that's why, one of the reasons we need a large survey of viruses and a large genetic database. We need to be able to identify viruses we should be worried about from their genetic structure. And to do that, we need to sort of survey across viruses to see what they look like. If we'd had that in place and we could say, oh, this looks as if it's going to go and attack those cells in the, um, you know, the respiratory tract, we should be really cautious about that one and, and, and work out ways to stop anything that looks like this very early on and develop tests and vaccines for it. So if it does appear, you could quickly move with those into the area where it had crossed across. Can you give some tangible examples of spillovers that have occurred that, in other words, what you're saying here is that the, there was noise in the system warning of future pandemics, and we ignored that noise. Can you give me an example of some of these noises? The one I quote, but it's an old one, is Hantan fever, which emerged during the Korean War, killed 3,000 Allied soldiers. It was a very substantial lost life, cause of life and probably spread to North America, actually, and re-emerged in the late 80s as another form of Hantan fever. But what other examples can you give apart from Ebola? The Hantan fever is interesting because it's once once it reappeared, it, it, it reappeared in the Four Corners region of uh, the US, New Mexico, Arizona. But it was a completely different species of Hantan than the one in the Korean War. 
Uh, and once people found it, they said, actually, these viruses are everywhere. So, so there, there are hundreds of Hantan viruses uh, distributed on, on each continent. Uh, and it's just we get unlucky and there's an outbreak sometimes. So, so, so it's unusual circumstances. Now, I think the most recent one that made me extremely nervous was the Nipah virus in Malaysia and, and Hendra virus in Australia. Now, those are like time bombs ticking away all the time. It's just as soon as you got the bats, you've got the fruit that drops into the animal enclosures. That's a huge risk. Luckily, we sort of retrospectively realized that Hendra virus and Nipah virus were, were different species, but very closely related. When they did get into humans, they're, they're very, very high mortality, but not particularly transmissible. How much optimism do you have that people will listen to what you're saying? My colleague, Chris Dye, has a wonderful book that came out last year called The Great Health Dilemma, asking across medical science, is prevention better than cure? And, you know, the tragic thing about medicine in the world is we only spend, we spend about 2% of the, any nation's budget on prevention. 98% of it is spent trying to fix people once they've got sick. We think from the perspective of infectious disease that COVID, we could have done something way, way earlier and it would have saved us huge amounts of money. Maybe this is a sort of wake up call to maybe start thinking about, about putting the cart ahead of the horse rather than letting it happen and then spending all the resources on trying to help people recover. Andy, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So that was Professor Andy Dobson, who works in ecology and evolutionary biology at Princeton University and the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico. And that's CoronaCast for today. Keep your questions coming in, and we'll see you on Wednesday. See you then. Hold up. 